Kia ora te whanau. E te wiki o te reo Māori. It's a good day. Um, Ko Sam Toku Ingwa. My name is Sam and I'm on the team here at St Augustine's and as always, it's a, a sorry, I'm just going to sort this out, a great um, privilege to be able to come and share. Um, so far in the series, we have been talking about listening to God or whakaronga ana kitiatua um, and we've been talking about how God speaks to us and um, we're talking about the ways in which that's sometimes in surprising ways, uh, talking about how God speaks to us personally or through scripture or even through dreams. Um, and there's a sense in the Bible, it talks about uh, God speaking through all of creation. So I think when we hear, we talk about God speaking, we're actually just as much talking about learning how to listen, this idea that God's actually speaking all the time. And today, I'm going to attempt to talk about how God might speak through culture, which is actually quite a complex little one, um, and, but we're going to try and unpack that today. Um, in Matthew 16, the religious leaders come to Jesus, and they're demanding a sign from him, and they say, um, and they're demanding a sign, and Jesus says, uh, when evening comes, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning, today will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret uh, the signs of the times. So there's a sense, I think, that um, in, in order to be the church well, to do church well, to be the church well, we have to kind of know the times that we're in and read the culture. Um, one of the greatest theologians ever, Karl Barth, said, you should take your Bible and take your newspaper and read both. But... Uh, interpret the newspapers from the Bible. So today we're going to try and do that, kind of. We're going to try and take our Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other and try to get them to talk to each other a little bit. So the first half will kind of be about how might we engage in culture, and the second half, I'm going to attempt to maybe unpack culture now and maybe talk about what, what's going on now and what that means for us. Does that sound okay? Great. Cool. All right. So a bit of a confession, uh, won't be a shock to many of you, but I think it'd be fair to say that I am like, I'm basically like a classic Christian dude, you know, like um, I play guitar, um, I've got hair like all the members of Switchfoot, um, you know, I know all the words to Jesus Freak by DC Talk, some of you might remember that song. Um, and I've seen Walk to Remember more than five times. Has anyone also done that? I knew, I actually thought you two would be in that category. I'm, I'm with you. You're my people. Um, so, and, and like, and on a bad side of things too, I was, oh, um, to talk about being a classic Christian dude in high school, um, I was also the guy that um, I, I broke up with my high school girlfriend by giving her a breakup letter and a copy of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. No, just terrible. I can't believe I told the church that. Um, anyway, so anyway, moving on. Um, Christian culture is kind of its own thing, you know, um, and there's parts of it that I really love and, like, are really protective over, and there's parts of it that I kind of want to distance myself from too. Here's a few examples. Uh, first one is a Sunday School Musical, which is like the um, Christian version of High School Musical, uh, which is... Probably the similar thing, but without the pagan charms of Zac Efron, I assume. I haven't seen it. 
Um, another example is Christian Chirp, which is the Christian alternative to Twitter, which if you go and look that up, has a very uh, fast, short history. Um, and the last example I can think of is uh, the Left Behind video game, um, <laughs> which, which post-rapture, uh, you go around, I kid you not, trying to convert neutrals and baddies um, by raising their spirit level through prayer and the avoidance of rock music. I'm not making this up. Hmm. So... <laughs> I feel like I've ruined my talk already. Okay, church has a complicated relationship to culture, I think, that stretches a long way back. Um, in some ways, we kind of try and emulate culture. Um, sometimes we have like a really negative view of culture, and it's something that we often feel like we have to avoid, or sometimes we feel like the only way we should be engaging in culture is by taking a stand on particular issues. And um, I probably want to sort of place all that into a frame. So there's a, there's a really good thinker, uh, a theologian called uh, James Davison Hunter, and he's kind of come up with these four main ways that the church tends to engage in culture. So I'm just going to unpack that a little bit. The first one is defensive against. This is the first way that the church tends to engage in culture. This is where we kind of understand ourselves as an opposing force to secular culture. Um, often that means that we kind of can demonize culture a little bit and can see secular culture as just completely bad and, um, and that we are the goodies uh, here to save everything, right? Um, often in this frame, we can be quite antagonistic towards culture. Um, and there's a sense in which in this mode, we're simply here to protect what's under threat, right? So that's the defensive against mode, and, and you might be thinking of ways in which we do that at the moment. Another way of engaging in culture is to be relevant to, and in this form, um, we can completely adapt to the forms of culture itself. Uh, we can kind of take on society's concerns, use its language, um, take on its image. We start to begin to, uh, to look like culture, and in this way, we can often give away our distinctiveness, um, forgetting the power of our own message. So in this mode, often we tend to forget the powerful gospel message and get caught up in how we dress it up to sell it to other people. So, yeah, that's relevance too. That's another mode of engaging culture. Um, another one is purity from. And, and that essentially means the best way to engage in culture is to separate out from it. It's one of separation. Uh, where we're sort of avoiding contamination from culture. Um, so we kind of silo off and do our own thing, you know, go to our own festivals, listen to our own music. And there's a sense that to properly engage in culture is just one of separation. Um, now, with all of those that I've mentioned so far, um, there are times in which they do have their place. Um, but as Davidson Hunter argues, and I think rightly, um, our mode in the main should be a faithful presence within. And a faithful presence within culture is uh, when we're called to be in culture, in the conversation, in dialogue, but maintaining our distinctiveness. Um, it's our identity. We are involved and we're a part of things and we're shaping things as we remain in relationship with culture, listening and contributing wisely, knowing what story we're actually operating out of. And I think this is kind of the way that we should be operating culture, a faithful presence within. But of course, to be a faithful presence within, we have to know what we're within. 
and how to be faithful to the story we're part of. Are you with me so far? Excellent. Cool. Okay, so as you're looking at it, you might be thinking, actually, I can place myself maybe in a couple more than the others. And that's worth reflecting on as we carry on and talk about what this is. There is a sense in which the last option really is the only kind of one that makes sense. And that's because, what is culture? Sometimes we talk about culture like it's a thing, uh, like it's an object we can point to, that it's like this distinct entity out there. But culture is, it's actually a verb. It's, uh, it's what we do. It's what we participate in. It's an activity. Uh, Catherine Tanner would say it's the meaning dimension of social life. So in other, way, in other words, it's kind of what happens between us. It's in the betweenness of things. Um, as we make meaning together through language and art and media and body language and clothes and facial expressions and food, and all that those things communicate. Uh, it is the betweenness between all of us. Um, and sometimes we can see the artifacts of that, like the things I've just mentioned. Um, but sometimes, well, most of the time, we actually only notice it through the subtle differences when we move out of our dominant culture into another one, and suddenly we are, we're aware of how you know, particular we really are. Now, I grew up in England, and let me tell you, Although we look quite similar, us Kiwis and the English, we are very different animals. And anyone that's lived there or is from there, you know I'm right, right? <laughs> There's always an Englishman grumpy about something. Um, <laughs> that's racist. He's just called me right. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, moving on. Um, <laughs> so if betweenness is what culture is, um, it's the relational meaning dimension of life, it's not something out there. We are culture. There are no hard boundaries here. Um, we affect each other. And this is why knowing what we're talking about is really handy so we can actually know what part we're playing in this dialogue. And God often speaks through culture. And I think we can all attest to that, that God speaking to us through powerful songs or um, a scene in a movie that really spoke to us about truth or uh, following the characters in a book in a way that it moves us towards understanding God better, we can all attest to it. There's a sense in which the, the whispers of God are everywhere. Or as Augustine said, um, a Christian should realize that truth belongs to his Lord wherever it is found. So culture can actually snap us back to realize what we may have forgotten or neglected. And there's many examples through history in which culture has done that for the church. But beyond this, um, it's actually importantly a way in which we can love people well. Um, it's a way of understanding them and ourselves so that we can sort of speak the truth of the gospel in ways that make sense to the people around us. Um, as the theologian uh, Kevin Van Hooser says, um, I cannot love my neighbor unless I understand him and the cultural world he inhabits. Cultural literacy, the ability to understand patterns and products of everyday life, this is an integral part of obeying the law of love. Learning what our culture is, understanding it is a way of actually loving it. Another great theologian of culture, Paul Tillich, says, the best way to understand a society or an epoch is to know its greatest anxieties and greatest hopes. So the question for me comes as we go into part two of this is, 
what is that for us right now? What are the greatest anxieties and the greatest hopes? So I want to give you one window into Western culture now, which sort of sits underneath a lot of our anxieties and hopes now. And I want to kind of suggest that God is actually challenging us through that. Firstly, in the way that um, we can sort of identify ways in which culture might be forming us. And secondly, to remind us of the important distinctiveness we have to actually hold on to in this time. So here we go. We're going to unpack what this is one window into culture right now, just one. But I think it's an important one. John Mayer. All right. Any fans in the room? Yeah, there we go. I look straight at you, Isaac. Yeah. John Mayer. John Mayer released an album last year called Sob Rock. As you can see, life is hard, rock soft. Don't think about that too hard. The whole album was like this homage to the 80s. Um, And so as you can see, the aesthetic is very 80s. It looks like something out of Miami Vice. Um, uh, But the music itself was also really 80s inspired too. You had like the songs in the album sound like Dire Straits and Toto and bands like that. Um, Other things include like the Nice Price sticker, which was what happened in all the the albums in the 80s as well. And and when you played the album on Spotify, there was like an animation of of an 80s Walkman that popped up on your screen to to really enter into this nostalgia. So he uh, was very clever. Um, He actually said in an interview that he wanted to implant false memories into the listeners of his album, which I don't know the ethics of John Mayer, but it's okay. But this was a complete trip into nostalgia, which was interesting because this is not an isolated incident of culture becoming pretty bent on nostalgia itself. Here are some other examples. Other bands that have completely taken on the 80s sound are bands like 1975 using like big synth layers, something like Bowie or NXS. We've got The Weeknd and Dua Lipa taking on a lot of the sound on the 80s as well. And you're thinking, what is going on at the moment? Uh, And then we've got Stranger Things, which is basically like the most popular TV program at the moment. And part of the appeal of of Stranger Things is the fact that it's taken on all the aesthetic of the 80s. You've got, you know, you've got uh, some of the fonts here that look like something out of Tron. uh, And a lot of the fun is actually watching them interact with technology and the images of the 80s as well. There's a sense in which we are really hooked into nostalgia at the moment. And nostalgia has always been a part of society, but suddenly it's right in the forefront. And I think that's important. Uh, Another really interesting example to me was this program. I don't know if many people in the room have seen it, but uh, WandaVision, which is a Marvel series that came out last year as well. And this program was the story of Wanda, and she loses her partner, Vision. um, And to deal with the grief of reality, what she does is she basically creates this artificial world. And she can't deal with her loss and the chaos of the present moment. So what she does, she creates this artificial world based on the sitcoms of all the different decades um, of TV. So it starts off in the first episode, and it looks really like I Dream of Jeannie and Dick Van Dyke show and stuff like that. And every single episode after that is after another decade of TV, till eventually the 90s, and you get to a program that looks just like Malcolm in the Middle, and then it moves on to Modern Family, and so on. But really deliberately, this show, what it was doing was it was um, she couldn't deal with reality as it was and the chaos and the uncertainty. So what does she do? She went back to the past that felt safer and easier to understand and less chaotic and created a world around that so she would feel safer. 
And as I watched this program, I thought, we are Wanda. That is Western culture right now. We don't know what to do with the present. It's almost like we can't deal with the uncertainty of life. So we're reaching back to nostalgia a lot of the time to try and give us a sense of feeling okay in the world. A great thinker, uh, Grafton Tanner, says this. Something happened to time in the 2010s. People started experiencing it differently they used to, uh, than they used to, so their relationship to it changed. News stories came and went at breakneck speed, but culture and politics seemed to stop completely. It became increasingly difficult to invent a future when so many were already staring down the twin barrels of climate warming and neoliberal austerity. So the entertainment industries of the 2010s stopped trying and gave consumers nostalgia instead. And by the dawn of the 2020s, a startling trend had emerged, something far more disturbing, an inability to imagine the present. So there's a sense in which culture has actually lost a sense of where we're going. It doesn't know how to make sense of the present. It's a real time, I think, of despair and not being able to imagine anything better, especially over the last two years we've just had. And there's a sense in which people are wanting nostalgia and people are giving it to them because it's the only, the past is the only place where we feel okay at the moment. And, and different political uh, leaders have picked this up, like the, the campaigns of Donald Trump and Victor Orban and Boris Johnson were all built campaigns on reviving something from the past because they understood this. They knew what was happening. And there's a sense that Marvel's so big, and what is it? We're selling the dreams of 12-year-olds in the 1950s to people. It's complete nostalgia. So this hasn't always been the case. And you know, being a, really a child of the 90s, I remember when culture wasn't like that, and we were quite positive. You know, we have movies like Independence Day, uh, where you know, we had this great existential threat of aliens destroying cities, but America still won, you know? It's very positive. So here's a picture of me and my brothers at Disneyland. So 90s, the size of my dad's camcorder there. It's probably as 90s as you can get. And if you weren't there, so this side of the room, if you guys weren't there, um, let me just explain it to you that 90s were like the high point of Western culture. That was the peak Western culture. We had Starbucks everywhere, a McDonald's in every corner. Uh, Friends was in its heyday. We had the Spice Girls. Um, Disneyland was at its peak, and we were thinking, maybe it was a small world after all. There's this real post-Cold War optimism, and uh, there, were, there were authors that were writing, there was this writer called Francis Fukuyama, he wrote this book called The End of History, where he basically argued, we're in this like post-war era, like this is it, we've, we've left that barbarism behind, we're, we're just now into economic things. Literally thinking we've made it past wars forever. Globalism seemed to have worked, or globalization seemed to have worked, and it's almost like this idea that we were actually going to make it. We're all going to be friends singing Kumbaya and holding hands across the globe. There was this real positive energy about where we were going into the future. But then 9-11 happened, and it was like reality broke back in. And then we had global financial crises, uh, and now we've had pandemics and a whole bunch of social issues that have been brought to the surface. And there's this sense that a whole bunch of the, the narratives in the West have actually failed us. Globalization has failed us. Capitalism, in a lot of ways, has failed us. The things we'd put hope in have failed us, and there's not much to fill the gap. The West didn't really have much else in the way of narratives here. So what have we done? 
we have looked to the past to feel okay. Do you know that Friends is almost as popular now as it was back in the 90s? People keep looking to the past to make them feel okay. There's a sense in which we haven't got much to hope for anymore. We can't make sense of the present and the future. It's a real time, I think, of pessimism. And paying attention to that helps to alert us to things as the church. Firstly, how are we engaging in that? Are we buying some of that? And how do we maintain our distinctiveness here? We're part of this cultural dialogue. We're in culture, uh, contributing, wanting to be a faithful presence within. And can I just say that the decline of narratives like this is not at all bad. Uh, The truth is reality has always been broken and our progress myths have never been enough and globalization was never the answer. We've actually been snapped out of our illusions in the West. So there's kind of like this limbo time, I think, especially out of COVID. So I think this moment calls for a hope that actually doesn't start with us. Uh, And we need to be listening to culture here, meaning we have to be conscious of the ways in which we have been formed by it. Have we bought into these narratives of decline? Have we... uh, bought into stories of the world that say everything is going to hell in a handbasket, that our only options are to remove ourselves or to assume a defensiveness and just capitulate to the cultural norms. So let's not forget that we're actually a a people of hope. Um, And the resurrection means that no matter how bad it gets and whatever crises come our way, that everything will be okay. God's got it. We are people already living out of the end of the story, and it's a good one. We can be aware of chaos and terror and greed and government agendas and still be people that know where the story is going. We don't have to settle for nostalgia or a hankering for a time where things may have felt uh, less uncertain and were easier to understand. We are a people of hope, (laughs) and hope is a discipline one that we do together, and it's imaginative. Our cultural moment is one where we're highly aware that things are not as they should be. But if we, the church, can be a people that is living out of a different script, engaged but not participating in the despairs of the day, we'll stand out like a sore thumb, or to use Jesus' language, like a city on a hill. Jürgen Moltmann puts it like this, and I love this. He says, this hope makes the Christian church a constant disturbance in human society. It makes the church a source of continual new impulses towards the realization of righteousness, freedom, and humanity here in the light of the promised future that is to come. We're a constant disturbance to these narratives that are failing us. Culture is saying some pretty strong things about the past and the future right now, and they're they're pretty bleak in general. The challenge to us is, I think, in this crucial moment, what are we saying back in the way that we talk, the way that we open our lives, our responses to so much rapid change? What are we saying in our art or in the way that we do community? God is speaking to us in this moment, um, showing us the temperature, challenging us to be different, I think. And the church will probably have to change in some ways in this new era, and we may need to let go of the ways we've always done things, which, again, can be really uncomfortable. If 
but we need to respond to culture and where it's at in order to love it well. Can we read the newspaper and interpret it in light of the biblical story? How much do we trust in the hope that we say we have given our lives to? I find this uh, personally hugely challenging myself. Um, When it comes to nostalgia, I'm probably the worst culprit. I find myself often hankering after years gone by, uh, wishing certain changes hadn't happened, often idealizing the past. Um, Often I can feel angry at life uh, and angry at leaders and, and situations like that. And often I don't want things to keep changing, and my attitude to the future can often be one of digging my heels in a little bit. But I want to be someone who is a faithful presence within knowing that God wants me to be a constant disturbance in this hope, to not just proclaim it, but to actually be a certain type of person. So I think this is a moment of challenge where we kind of look at culture in the face and and ask ourselves, where have we drunk the Kool-Aid, but where can we speak back to as well, and what do we need to be as a church? It's a real challenge. So as we move into time of prayer later on, there is an opportunity to to pray for this. And I I just want to ask you a few questions based on that. Things like, maybe you can ask the Spirit to show you if you feel like you've never learned how to do it or forgotten how to do it, to be a person of hope right now. We've had a really hard two or three years. Maybe you've found that you've got very little left in the tank. Maybe the Spirit needs to again show you how to be a person of hope. Maybe culture doesn't trouble you enough. (laughs) Maybe it's got into your head a little bit and you pretty much agree. Maybe you need God to show you how to be a constant disturbance and what things we naturally need to push against. Maybe you could ask for wisdom about how to be a faithful presence within your place of work and your families, your communities and your friendships. I think actually this is an exciting prospect for the church to be a people of hope, and to respond again in new and creative and imaginative ways. How do we do and be the church now in this time where things have changed? This is no longer the 90s. (laughs) So I'll just pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll move on to the next bit. But just to say that communion itself is an act of saying the real hope isn't what society is going to do. This is not what society or culture is going to do or what governments are going to do. The only real hope is the death and resurrection of Jesus. When we come to the table, that's what we're proclaiming again, that our whole being rests on him. So Lord, I want to thank you that we are part of an amazing story of hope, that you want your people to be a constant disturbance. And Lord, we love New Zealand and we love these people that we are in culture and relationship with. Would you teach us how to keep finding new and imaginative ways to speak of your truth? Would you inspire us? Would you put dreams in our hearts to do that? And would you help us to move on from things that we've done before that no longer speak in the same ways? You are the God that keeps speaking, and I pray that you'd give us the ears to hear culture in ways that help us to love it well, and to keep us alert to the stories that we are living out of. Would you do that for our church? Uh, may, May this new season be one where we walk in some new and exciting ways. Help us to be innovators for your kingdom. So I'll just end on the words of Paul in Romans. He says, May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks.